High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a smile of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is the final episode, for now, in our series about famous people during times of war or Star Wars. Let's begin today's story in Beverly Hills in the early 1950s. Little Ned Wynn is growing up surrounded by celebrities. He plays on the beach with a teenage Liz Taylor. A drunken Judy Garland comes into his room at night, looking for a friendly ear for her own myriad troubles. One day, when he's still a pretty little boy, Ned's mother sits him down and shows him a copy of Confidential magazine. In this gossip rag is a story about Ned's mother, Ned's father, and Ned's stepfather. Both of the men were Hollywood stars. The article in Confidential described the friendship between the two men, which led to a very close relationship between both men and Ned's mom. This threesome's close bond was broken, the magazine explained, when Ned's mom divorced Ned's dad, to marry Ned's dad's best friend. So Ned's mom shows Ned this article, and Ned is like, well, that's exactly what happened, right? Yes, his mother said. But the magazine had twisted the truth all around to make it look like something bad had happened. When in fact, 
everything was perfectly normal. Women divorce husbands and take new husbands every day, she said. If your father or your stepfather had been Joe Blow, Ned's mother said, Confidential Magazine wouldn't have cared. But Ned's dad was Keenan Wynn, and his stepfather was Van Johnson. And so it was Confidential Magazine's job to not only care about their affairs, but to make them look as tawdry as possible. And that's why, Ned's mother told him, they had to be careful all the time to not ever say or do anything that you wouldn't want the whole world to hear or see. Ned Wynn later wrote a memoir about his childhood called We Will Always Live in Beverly Hills. For his family, the cost of maintaining a Beverly Hills lifestyle, aside from enormous amounts of money, was that they learned to keep secrets and to keep anything that might endanger the way they made money under wraps. This kind of grand deception and the self-denial it required was something in which Ned's stepfather could have taught a master class. Van Johnson became a major star during World War II, which he was excused from fighting in after a 1943 accident left Van with a metal plate installed in his head. In movies like A Guy Named Joe and 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Johnson served as a surrogate for someone that virtually everyone in the audience knew, a completely normal, stand-up guy with no pretensions and certainly no perversions, who answered the call to serve even though he'd rather be at home romancing the girl next door. Johnson's average Joe charisma made him a sensation in a nation and at a time during which so many boys next door were gone for who knows how long. The only problem was that Van Johnson was only pretending to be a happy-go-lucky average Joe. Van Johnson had a secret, and he and everyone around him was convinced that this secret had to be kept, lest Van lose the one thing in his life that really mattered to him, his stardom. Join us, won't you, for the final episode of this season on Van Johnson. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, 
Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist, netsuite.com slash remember. Born in Rhode Island in 1916, Van Johnson had been abandoned by his alcoholic mother and raised by a father described by Ned Wynn as a cold, humorless Swede. Van's dad seemingly didn't approve of displays of emotion of any kind. He lived an ascetic life and a solitary one, and the mere idea of wanting anything but the bare essentials seemed to offend him. As a child, Van found refuge from his dour home life at the movies. Sometimes he would watch the rest of the audience as they watched the screen. I could almost feel how they had forgotten their own lives and troubles and maybe the narrowness of existence, he said later. How for a while they were carried out of themselves and could live so much more, so many more lives. If Van Johnson would believe in anything as an adult... It was the transportative and transformative potential of Hollywood fantasy. And why not? It had worked for him. He grew up tall, gangly, and ginger. In high school, he didn't date at all. In the fall of 1935, he left home to seek his fortune in New York City, where he started pounding on doors of Broadway agencies. At this point, Van was more of a dancer than an actor, but he was eager to learn. He started getting chorus jobs and then finally got a break as an understudy to all three male leads in the Rodgers and Hart show, Too Many Girls, which co-starred Desi Arnaz. After playing a small part in the movie of Too Many Girls, where both he and Desi Arnaz met Lucille Ball for the first time, Van returned to Broadway to understudy Gene Kelly in Pal Joey. Within the Broadway scene at this time, there was little to no stigma about being gay, and people who knew Van in the theater tended to assume he wasn't straight, even though whatever he was doing in his personal life, he kept discreet. But he was working mostly as an understudy and chorus boy, a type of work that's infantilizing, if not feminizing, and it seems like there was some sense that he needed to prove his manhood in order to keep moving up the ladder as a leading man, and make the jump to Hollywood. During the Too Many Girls run, Van's agent Martin Giroux asked a sexy actress in the show to seduce Van, which she did, apparently without incident. Apparently understanding that there was some perception that he wasn't manly enough, between Too Many Girls and pal Joey, Van started working out with weights, and the adult body he settled into was bulky and substantial. But when pal Joey closed in 1941, Van had no work lined up. He returned to his hometown despondent. But soon his agent called with news. Warner Brothers wanted to sign Van to a contract. When Van arrived on the Warner's lot, he was given the once-over, and he was told that he didn't look like a leading man. The problem, according to the studio, was Van's strawberry blonde hair. So they dyed it black, but apparently not very well. The dye would come out when he swam and left soot marks on his pillowcases. Van was happy to do what he was told. He was happy to change anything about him if it would make him a star. 
But Warner's decided the hair dye didn't do the job, and after six months, they let Van's contract expire. He was ready to give up. And then an introduction from Lucille Ball helped Van land a screen test at MGM. Warner Brothers might dye a guy's hair and then shrug their collective shoulders and give up when it didn't work, but MGM didn't give up so easily. More than even movies, MGM's product was stars. And in the early 1940s, MGM was afraid that they were going to lose all of their male stars to the war. After Pearl Harbor, MGM lost Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, and Robert Montgomery to the armed services. Even Mickey Rooney would eventually be drafted. Van Johnson's first big break came thanks to the absence of Lou Ayers, the star of the studio's popular Dr. Kildare series, who filed as a conscientious objector but then went to go work as a medic. Unbeknownst to him at the time, Van Johnson's first MGM screen test coincided with the studio's decision to replace the Dr. Kildare character with a new, idealistic, red-headed doctor named Dr. Red Adams. Wide-eyed, starstruck, red-headed 25-year-old Van Johnson was perfect for the part. MGM didn't have an incentive to touch Van's hair, but they did exercise their usual heavy hand in shaping his persona. As part of this process, MGM's head of personnel, Benny Thau, discreetly asked Van's agent, Martin Giroux, if there was a situation to be worried about in regards to Van's sexual orientation. Giroux, who had suspected the same situation himself back on Broadway and worried that it would hold his client back from Hollywood success, dismissed MGM's suspicions. For his part, Van was all too happy to submit to the studio system, to play his role in the life they made up for him, and to suppress any aspect of himself that didn't fit in with MGM's plan. He loved studio life. As soon as I walked through those gates, he'd say later, I knew. I was home. Around this time, Van was living as a roommate in the house of actress June Havoc, his former pal Joey castmate, and the half-sister of burlesque legend Gypsy Rose Lee. Their relationship was platonic, but one day, Van suggested they make it legit. He had just returned from dinner at Joan Crawford's house, and he spoke dreamily about his hostess's high-quality lifestyle. "'That's the way to live,' Van said. "'Everything in that house is proper and right.'" He told June that he planned to be a big star like Joan Crawford and get his own pricey house and his own wife, who, as he put it, can entertain graciously and who can speak to the press properly. But why wait for someday? Why don't we get married? Van asked June. You have the down payment for a house like that, and the FHA would trust me for the rest because I've got my metro contract. June Havoc declined this less-than-romantic proposition, and when MGM informed him that his living situation could be problematic... Van moved out of June's house. Van's first feature at MGM was a small part in the Lana Turner-Clark Gable war correspondence romance, Somewhere I'll Find You. On set, Van quickly befriended another new MGM signee, Keenan Wynn. 
The son of comic Edwin, Keenan was married to the former Evie Abbott, who had been an actress, but who gave up her own career in 1939 when she married Keenan so that she could manage his career. Keenan would later say he was Evie's hobby more than her hubby, and that they had nothing in common besides for their interest in his career. But while they were married, both worked hard to maintain the illusion of a happy family. Keenan and Van were the same age, and they had signed to MGM at the same time, and the two men soon became inseparable. Keenan and Evie were already comfortably ensconced in the Hollywood social scene, and their friendship helped the socially awkward Van find his way in an environment in which he was naturally uncomfortable. Van was so useless at small talk that he started wearing red socks all of the time in the hopes that they would start ice-breaking conversations for him. The socks became Van's trademark, but Keenan and Evie were the more useful accessories when it came to networking. Keenan and Van had their differences. Keenan was a member of a weekend motorcycle gang, and it was more Van's speed to spend time with Evie, shopping or escorting her to parties. But Van started spending so much time with both wins that rumors started to swirl that the threesome were more than just friends. Not only were they together all the time, but the three of them reportedly bickered with one another like, well, like a married couple. MGM made sure Keenan and Evie were frequently photographed with their son to reinforce the idea that they were a happy family, with or without Uncle Van. Keenan Wynn was a character actor, often playing the best friend of the main character. But Van was starting to make a name for himself as a leading man. With so many actors overseas, there were a lot of parts available for a young, reasonably good-looking, regular Joe-style guy who could play an army private, as Van did in films like The War Against Mrs. Hadley and The Human Comedy. In spring 1943, he was gearing up for his biggest part yet, in A Guy Named Joe, in which he would play a young pilot who falls in love with Irene Dunn after the death of her old boyfriend, a legendary pilot played by Spencer Tracy. Then, in May 1943, Van, Evie, and Keenan were on their way to a screening on the MGM lot in Van's convertible. They were just around the corner from the studio on Venice Boulevard when another car ran a red light and came hurtling into the convertible. The car flipped over. Van hit his head on the ragtop's clamp as he went flying. Lying in the gutter, he realized that his face was wet, and he assumed it had started raining. But actually, his face was wet with blood. Windshield glass had cut open his face and neck, severing an artery, through which he lost three quarts of blood. The back of his head had been peeled clean away. His skull had fractured, and bone fragments had pierced his brain. Everyone else in the accident emerged relatively, and miraculously, unscathed. The crash had occurred on the border between the city of Los Angeles and Culver City, and the accident had thrown Van's body over the dividing line. So the Los Angeles police showed up and told Van he'd have to wait for an ambulance from Culver City. Van had been nearly decapitated, but he was conscious, and he allegedly said, 
Tell me where the right side is and I'll crawl there. At the hospital, the doctors told the winds that their friend would be lucky to live and he'd almost certainly never work again. But throughout the ordeal, as multiple operations took place to sew Van's scalp back in place and a metal plate was inserted in his head and muscle tissue from his arm was extracted to help rebuild his forehead, all the while, all Van could think was, I haven't got time to be sick. I've got a picture to make. Van only kept his job in that picture because his co-stars, Spencer Tracy and Irene Dunn, told MGM they'd boycott the shoot unless production was rescheduled to accommodate Van's recovery. They were huge stars who couldn't be replaced. And so, three months after the accident, while still living in convalescence at Keenan and Evie's place, Van Johnson reported to set to film through debilitating headaches and many layers of makeup over his still-healing scars as bizarre a bit of romantic war propaganda as you'll see. No one in A Guy Named Joe is actually named Joe. The film gets its title from a British child's understanding of American vernacular. There he is, you call it. No, you, I did it yesterday. Yes, Tyler, hey, Joe, that's the way the Americans do it. But his name isn't Joe. Don't you know anything about slang? In the American Air Forces, anybody who's a right chap is a, a guy named Joe. That's very foolish, Peter. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The first part of the film introduces us to Pete, a selfish, show-off daredevil pilot played by Tracy, and his longtime love, Dorinda, a girl pilot played by Irene Dunn. One of Pete's foolhardy displays of flying skill eventually kills him. In the afterlife, he's assigned to be a kind of ghostly counsel to Ted, an upstart pilot played by Van. Nobody can see Pete, but Ted can sort of hear his voice, as though it's a voice in his own head. Months go by, and while under Pete's watch, Ted meets and immediately falls for Dorinda, who is not only much older than him, but has also essentially given up on life since Pete's death. After they've only known each other for a couple of days, Ted decides he and Dorinda ought to marry, and he proposes, with ghostly Pete looking on. You're the prettiest girl in all the world. You're prettier than a P-38. Oh, Ted, I know what's the matter with you. You're crazy. <laughs> not really crazy. I've just gone to a decision, that's all. Decision what? Brenda, I'm going to marry you. You're going to marry me. That's it, marry you. You're going to be Mrs. Ted Randall, my wife. Me? I'll be your husband. Get it? Oh, it's not the most original idea on earth. It's been done before, but never with two people like us. 
You mean you and I? That's it, married. M-A-double-R-I-E-D. The judge goes so-and-so and so-and-so and you're married. You will, won't you? Oh, Ted, I... Yes. Hooray! <laughs> Dorinda then decides she loves Pete still and can't marry Ted, but then she flies a dangerous mission in Ted's stead to save him from getting hurt. And while she's up in the plane, Pete tells her to move on with her life, which means hooking up with Ted. At the end of the film, ghost Spencer Tracy keeps whispering his blessing as Irene Dunn runs into Van Johnson's arms. There he is, Drinda. Go on. I'm setting you free, Drinda. I'm moving out of your heart. Bye. Goodbye, darling. That's my girl. A weird kind of alchemy happened with this movie and with this star. Of course, the message of the film, that ego has no place in a life-or-death fight, was timely. But also, the audience knew all that Van had been through off-screen, and maybe that made them more likely to feel sympathy for him on-screen, where he was wearing a military uniform that he would now never wear in real life, thanks to that metal plate lodged in his skull. Maybe it was because Van knew about all he had been through. Maybe his brush with death gave his acting, and particularly the romance plot, all that more urgency. Whatever it was, A Guy Named Joe was the right film at the right time. And when it was released in December 1943, Van Johnson became a sensation. Teenage girls started stampeding the MGM studio lot gates, autograph books in hand. They'd send him little gifts of candy, gum, and homemade baked goods. They'd reach for him as he walked by and rip buttons off of his clothes. Van was constantly having to have his car repainted to cover up the residue of love notes scrawled by fans and lipstick. With this blockbuster, and a string of subsequent hits, most of which had him either in uniform or romancing human mermaid Esther Williams, Van Johnson became an avatar for every boy next door who had gone far away. And given all Van had been through, unlike other actors who didn't serve, enlisted men could watch his films without the distraction of their nagging suspicion that the actor had somehow used his privilege to escape the war. Van loved being famous. But after the accident and his subsequent rise to the top of the totem pole, it became more apparent than ever that there were two Van Johnsons. There was the Van that showed up on set, the good-natured, everyday Joe, who the press sold to adolescent girls as a gum-chewing, beer-drinking, pretension-free, fantasy-perfect, nice-guy boyfriend. As the LA Times put it, the movie star Van Johnson was... Quote, as American as ice cream, as masculine as a briar pipe, and as cleanly, unaffectedly appealing as a sea breeze in July. But then there was the off-the-clock van, an introvert who had trouble making even the most basic human connections without lines to read or a persona to play. 
He came to hate leaving the studio at night. Because the make-believe of movies felt realer and more natural to him than anything in the so-called real world. One problem with playing the role of Van Johnson was that the actor was constantly asked about the lack of any apparent special lady in his life. I'm married to MGM, he would say. That got old pretty fast, but on some level it helped Van's star persona for him to remain a bachelor. His fan mail was full of marriage proposals. What would it do to his image for all those little girls to learn, for one reason or another, that they'd never have him? If there were special men in Van's life during this time, there are no reliable records of it. It seems like whatever social life he had was pretty much limited to Keenan and Evie Wynn. He became part of their family, an uncle to their sons. More than once, Keenan and Van were spotted horsing around, wrestling like little boys. But then, when Keenan went on a USO tour, Van stayed behind and became Evie's constant companion on the Hollywood social scene. The general perception around town was that Van had become unusually close to both of the winds. Even Edwin, Keenan's famous dad, reportedly snarked, I can't keep them straight. Evie loves Keenan, Keenan loves Evie, Van loves Evie, Evie loves Van, Van loves Keenan, Keenan loves Van. In January 1945, Keenan joined the military, and he and Evie agreed to separate. But before he could ship out, Keenan was in a horrible motorcycle accident. After 11 days in a coma, he survived and Evie took him back. As the war began to wrap up, Van knew his stardom was in a perilous position. The leading men who had joined the fight were starting to return, and the rumors that something was amiss in his personal life were starting to get louder. After ice skater-turned-actress Sonia Henney allowed the press to link her to Van for a few weeks, gossip columnist Luella Parsons made this cryptic comment. Van is 30 years old and has never come close to marrying, regardless of what has been written about his, quote, romances. This was all getting to be a little bit much for Louis B. Mayer. The studio mogul had a history of interfering in his star's personal lives, particularly when it came to actors afflicted with what was then considered the disease of loving other men. At the tail end of the silent era, Two of Mayer's contract players saw their sexuality hasten the end of their careers. There was Billy Haynes, who seamlessly made the transition from silent films to sound, and by 1930, he was one of Hollywood's most bankable stars. But then in 1933, Haynes was arrested for having sex with a sailor in his bed at the YMCA, and Mayer gave Haynes an ultimatum. Marry a woman, or your contract is kaput. Haynes refused to sham Mary, in part because he had a long-term boyfriend, and Mayer fired him. Haynes was well-liked in Hollywood, and he subsequently became a successful interior designer. But his acting career was over. Before that, there was Ramon Navarro, the Mexican heartthrob who had starred in Ben-Hur in 1925, who was asked to marry to cover his true sexual identity, but he refused in part because he was in a relationship with his publicist. 
when Navarro's contract ran out in 1935, MGM didn't renew it, and Navarro struggled to find work, developing a serious drinking problem. He was murdered 33 years later by two male hustlers whose services he had purchased for the evening. Of course, no one could have foreseen Navarro's terrible fate in the mid-1940s, but just the very idea that the public could find out that a star was gay was considered to be absolutely the worst thing that could happen, particularly for a star as wholesome as Van Johnson. Louis B. Mayer decided that the only way to deal with this situation was to make sure that Van married a woman. But there was only one woman whose company Van seemed to enjoy. Mayer thought that if this one woman were available, Van might do the smart thing and marry her on his own. Eventually, Mayer was moved to take action. According to Mayer's biographer Scott Iman, this happened in 1944, although Iman's timeline doesn't totally make sense. In any case, sometime between 1943 and 1947, Evie Wynn was called into Louis B. Mayer's office, and Mayer explained that he needed to find Van Johnson a wife. In the moment, Evie didn't totally understand what was happening. But later, she described it pretty succinctly. They needed their big star to be married to quell rumors about his sexual preferences. She said, and unfortunately, I was it, the only woman he would marry. Mayer surely knew that Evie's marriage to Keenan Wynn only looked functional, that the couple had separated more than once, and that the divorce was likely an eventuality. But Keenan was still the father of her children, and in the 40s, a man who could not only not make his marriage work, but who also couldn't provide for his children, would look like a bum. And so, before Evie could say much of anything, Mayer mused about how character actors like Keenan were expensive to keep around in relation to how much value the studio got in return. Mayer then all but cracked his knuckles and said, it would be a shame if anything would have happened to your husband's employment here at the studio. And Evie found herself saying that what would make her really happy would be if Keenan Wynn was signed to the best contract a character actor had ever seen at a major studio to that point. Evie would later insist that she didn't know Van was gay when she married him. She said of Mayer, In retrospect, I can see he was arranging my marriage to Van, just as Universal later did for Rock Hudson. That was a farce. Ours was a real marriage. I was in love with Van, but I wouldn't have married him if I'd known he was homosexual. Evie may have been the last to know. Arthur Lawrence, who was gay himself, included a passage in his memoir about an unnamed, quote, sunny male star caught performing in public urinals once too often, who was, quote, ordered by his studio to get married, and whose, quote, best friends divorced so he could marry the wife. Billy Haynes, the first gay actor to refuse a mayor-arranged straight marriage, 
would later hint that just as his arrest at the YMCA had given Mayer an excuse to give him an ultimatum, there may have been an inciting incident when it came to Mayer's meeting with Avi and her subsequent marriage to Van. Haynes said that his own situation had been repeated by an actor with, quote, the same initials as one of the celebrations of the end of the war, and that MGM kept the arrest of this person, who we'll call VJ, out of the papers on the condition that he straighten up his affairs, so to speak. Later, Evie Wynne had the perspective to see why she and Van had been set up. Now we can see their marriage in a trajectory of sham marriages that were standard practice for a studio seeking to protect a star from any sex scandal, gay or straight. If Evie had had any inkling that Van's career was at stake, then that might have been enough for her to submit to Mayer's plot. After all, Van's self-worth was so wrapped up in being a star. If that was taken away from him, what kind of life would be left for him? And so, in January 1947, Evie went to Mexico to get a divorce. Four hours after that was wrapped up, she and Van were married. Almost like life imitating a guy named Joe, with Keenan Wynn stepping into the shoes of spectral Spencer Tracy, giving his blessing to his girl and his boy as they walked off into the sunset. And so Van, Evie, and Evie's two kids, fathered by Keenan, moved into a gaudy architectural masterpiece in Santa Monica. Van and Evie had a daughter together. And Van finally had the big house and the perfectly trained wife who knew how to throw a party and how to talk to reporters. He had everything he had ever wanted since that night at Joan Crawford's house. But the marriage didn't necessarily have the intended effect. Friends of Van's, such as Lucille Ball, didn't approve of the lengths he was going to to protect his stardom. Even aside from hiding his true identity, it sure looked like Van had wrecked his best friend's home in order to build his own. And who does that? And Van's young fans, who had been charmed by his apparent innocence and lack of worldliness, were turned off too. The fan magazines and MGM's mailbag were suddenly full of testimonials from Van fans who had suddenly turned against him. As a Sacramento cinema cashier put it, I don't think he should have married his best friend's wife. The magazines that had made Van a wartime matinee idol now broke him. By 1948, Van had dropped off all of the lists of the most bankable and popular stars. So he regrouped stepping away from the leading man limelight and agreeing to play smaller character parts. He slowly found new niches. He returned to his chorus boy roots, playing the romantic lead at the musical In the Good Old Summertime, opposite Judy Garland, and this was counterbalanced by Van's turn in the war film Battleground, which shored up his image as an action hero, giving his star persona a much-needed dose of machismo. Van coasted happily through the next few years— Between 1950 and 1954, he made 14 movies and made half a million dollars every year. Van's contract at MGM ran out in 1954. His time there ended on a really high note. In his last year, he filmed Brigadoon, The Cane Mutiny, and The Elizabeth Taylor Vehicle, The Last Time I Saw Paris. And then he didn't work for two years. The studio system was starting to crumble. 
Louis B. Mayer had been pushed out of his own studio, what hope was there for the stars he had created and protected? The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. And after all it took to get it, Van found home life no solace. Van's way of dealing with family problems was to loudly announce, That's your department, Evie, and storm off. Ned Wynn called Van the master of the huff, meaning he had turned making his pissed-off exit into an art form. Throughout the 1950s, Van would periodically move out of the family house and into a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel for a week or two. But then he'd think about his daughter and about how his mother had abandoned him, and he'd come back. He continued to work, But money was tight, and the opportunities for Van didn't seem to be in Hollywood any longer. In 1959, a director specifically requested to cast Van in a film at Fox, and the studio nixed it, calling Van box office poison. Two years later, Van was starring in a London stage production of The Music Man, when he moved his clothes out of the apartment he and Evie were sharing, and told his wife he wanted a divorce. When Evie's son, Ned, asked his mother what had happened with her and his stepfather, she said, He doesn't want to be married anymore. Ned pressed. His mother told him that Van had left her for the lead dancer in the production of The Music Man. This was typical, Ned thought. She English? he asked. And his mother said, It's a man. A boy, really. He's the lead male dancer. She admitted that she had heard stories. Van's own friends, like director Henry Hathaway, had tried to tell her. But Van Johnson was a man you didn't want to confront about his secrets. Van Johnson was a man who slammed doors as a warning. Push him further, and he might throw a chair at you, or push you into a wall, especially if you were his wife. Evie suffered for her part in the deception, emotionally and financially. Van once called their breakup, quote, the ugliest divorce in Hollywood history, and he complained of having to send regular alimony payments to the quote-unquote dragon lady. Thanks to back taxes, there wasn't always money to send. It was only late in her own life, broke and bitter, that Evie started talking about the Louis B. Mayer plot. Her son, Ned, published his book in which he outed Van in 1990. 
Van Johnson died in 2008, and never during his lifetime did he publicly come out of the closet. He would, however, triumph on Broadway in his late 60s, playing one of the gay men at the center of the hit, La Cage à Faux, later the basis for the film The Birdcage. This has been interpreted by some as Van's tacit acknowledgement that there was a closet, which he didn't feel the need to actually formally come out of, which was his choice. It's usually a man's prerogative to decide which secrets he keeps, and most of the time, it's his responsibility if the secrets he keeps hurt the people who love him. But these men and women who turned their real identities over to the studio system and adopted new personas in exchange for the spoils of stardom, can we really hold them to the same standards as normal people? How much honesty and self-revelation of any kind could you reasonably expect from someone who had been through the meat grinder of the star machine? Maybe no one could be themselves after that. Even if, like Van Johnson, you had 50 years of life left after the collapse of the studio system in which to try to figure it out. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Please tell everybody about our podcast any way you can. One way you can do that is by following us on Twitter and tweeting at us. We're at Remember This Pod. You can rate and review us on iTunes, where we hope you've subscribed to us. If not, please do so. You can also find us on virtually any podcatcher of your choice. This was the last episode in our series, Star Wars, at least for now. And now we need a break to recharge, and to start researching our next series. We're going to go on hiatus, and we'll be back on May 26th with an all-new series of stories from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Oh, make me over. I'm all I want. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. 
They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.